welcome aboard the Soul Train for the next couple of hours or so. I will be one of your lovely hosts. My name is Matt. Sometimes I go by the Grass Factor. Actually, never do I ever. I go by Matt Martin, and I've been called first name, last name for pretty much the entirety of my life, except for when I was in college. There was a uh, cuss word that separated Matt and Martin, so funny how that ends up working, but here I am, and I will be your host tonight. Alongside with me, we have my two special co-hosts. We have Mr. Ryan DeMay. Dun, 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 dun. How are you, Ryan? What have you been up to, dog? Oh, it's uh, it's the end of project season. It's getting ready for football season. We were just talking about that here off the air. You're getting excited. I'm getting really excited. And, uh, yeah, getting ready to be in that point of the season where – Ray loves to be right where we're trying to grow grass faster than somebody else can destroy it. Right, Ray? <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, uh, I'm just, uh, prepping for what I call, uh, grass hill here in Hawaii. <laughs> and it's not because I have a football field or a baseball field. It's just, uh, for, to those, all of those of you that come to Hawaii in November, December, January, February, and March, if only you could appreciate what it takes to keep grass alive here at that time of the year. Well, luckily, we don't all have to experience that. And speaking of keeping grass alive in harsh conditions, we have our friend hailing all the way from Dallas, Texas, Matthew Montgomery here with us. How are you, Matt? Welcome to the show. Thank you. Doing pretty well. Thanks for uh, you know, bringing me on. Yeah, thank you for being here. And I think this is going to be a fun one because um, really, you know, growing grass in Texas has a unique set of challenges. And, uh, and I'll start off with this. Uh, that for anybody that's ever conducted a soil test that, that lives in the Dallas or Austin area, uh, the first thing you notice is that you're not growing grass on traditional soil. You are growing grass in limestone. Um, there is an extreme, all these people that pull soil tests and they're like, hey, I'm a little bit worried. I've got 2,300 parts per million of calcium in my soil test. Oh, I've got 3,300 parts per million in my soil test. And Texas <laughs> is like, no, no. We're Texas. We've got 23,000 parts per million on our soil test. The worst you've ever seen, multiply it times 10. And that's where we are because we are literally growing uh, in number 57 stone down here. So <laughs> thanks for keeping it real and, uh, and coming on here. And I think, you know, there's, you're going to hear all kinds of wild ass ideas um, just because, just because... Um, you, you have to pretty much take a wild ass approach to growing grass well in Texas. And I use well loosely there. Uh, I still think with a good agronomic foundation and consistently working on your pH, you know, you can hit that 75, 80%. However, when you're trying to go for those, uh, those 90%, uh, type types of deals there, you, you've got to take risks because of the, um, the pandemonium that is the Texas Dirt Club. <laughs> is that like the Texas Buyer? Is that like the Buyers Club or whatever? A little bit yeah, no, I don't think so. Dallas, Dallas, <laughs> Dallas Buyers Club. 
That's it. That was yeah. Fire's Club. What are the old uh, I, you know, uh, radio shows where you would like buy, sell, and trade over the radio, and somebody would call in and be like, "Yeah, I've got three donkeys I need to get rid of, and I'm looking for a Kodiak." 850 uh four-wheeler and an engine to a pontiac gto rust is fine yeah have you ever heard this, those old radio shows they're the no best. this is this is this is the most tennessee thing i've ever heard i think they originated from texas and they're in like really rural areas and i'm the weirdo that would when i first got internet radio for the first time i would turn on these old um like n nobody listening is less than 70 years old and uh and i would find them in these rural communities and they're like bartering over the phone with people like i ain't got a gto engine but i got four pigs i'll give you four pigs for them two donkeys how's that sound <laughs> it's great it is some of the best radio that exists surely there's got to be clips of this on youtube somewhere because there's clips of everything on youtube so we'll have to We'll have to do some digging for that because I'm interested to hear. There's probably got to be like a best of or something like this, like a greatest hits. What would that be? <laughs> what, what do you think if there if there was a uh, a turf version of that? What do you you know? What do you think you'd have out there? You know, man, I got like I got five bags of starter, uh, a bag of Kentucky Thirty One, and I don't know seventeen Ray, and a else? quarter Oops. ounces of glyphosate. <laughs> <laughs> but not the 41 percent. that's not 41 percent. no it's it's rtu it's ready to spray yeah and it's cut with these radio radio look and look steve darcy from iowa of all places knows all about it radio radio <laughs> oh howard stern used to prank call this that's what immediately came up i've never heard I've never heard Howard Stern prank call anybody regarding Tradio. Um, that's funny. We may have to save that for the show after the show. We'll see. Yeah, that could be a show after thing for sure. Get J Pink flagged again. All right, so Dallas. So uh, one thing I was really worried about or wondering about here was, you know, you guys had some absolutely awful and uh, unseasonably is probably too too light of a word. Cold, you know, weather there in february what you know Absolutely. what did that do to things like just to, you know from your observations of not only like what you take care of but what you saw other people taking care of from the lowest of low-end turf all the way up to the highest of high-end turf you know what did you see uh in the the dfw area um excuse me the uh probably the most prominent thing that i i guess you know, had discussions with people about or, you know, overheard other people talking about was the Brudex locust swarm and that the freeze actually limited the numbers of locusts that we had emerging or delayed them. I mean, they've only been out in the last week, whereas they were swarming all over other parts of the country, you know, a month ago. Yeah. As far as turf goes, I've seen a whole lot of full, complete renos, just people like crazy ripping them out and, you know, putting new stuff in. Um, a lot of fungus. I mean, there's a there's a lot of takeoff. You can drive down pretty much any one of our you know residential blocks, and you'll find at least two houses that are you know just bare spots galore. Um, mm. I I think for the most part, you know, there's a truck and trailer on every corner right now, just always working, always going on. You know, there that's always been the case, but these guys have really kind of ramped up. Um, 
their businesses and you know people who were solo trucks are now out running around you know with five or six of them just because they've had such a busy busy season in the first three months trying to get everybody's properties back to the back to where they want them um mm-hmm. one of them my my main job actually we have a uh, rather large uh property with a whole bunch of unique ornamentals and we had to rip almost half of it out and replant because everything is gone that's crazy yeah i, I mean that's yeah. that's one i guess it's a, it's a well, ray and matt question because you, you guys are lawn care guys i mean you you know that that's coming or it's already passed and everything and it's february right and ray certainly you're not going to have sub-zero temperatures but you could have an awful winter or end of winter you know how are you going to reset expectations for those people that are your customers and make sure that they don't right out of the gate fire you uh or get to this point in the season where oh man it should have grown back wait i can't do the the good southern report man i was grass didn't come back already man what's well, this july it's august it's the most football season go balls like that kind of thing what do you no, do sec yeah well uh what I've had to go through is kind of talk people off of the ledge after hailstorms because mm. I don't get ice and snow, but particularly in that time between January and May, we are susceptible to hailstorms here. And I've had to tell people, you know what? All I can do for you is chop your plants back that are all shredded uh, and then hit them with the good old uh, 111 and uh, depth in and see if they want to come back on their own. You know, that that's my best answer for them. A lot of cases. So when I lived in... Uh... Augusta, Georgia. If you remember, that was the year that Atlanta and Augusta had the big ice storm where the school buses got stranded on the interstate. And uh, mm-hmm. and approximately 40% of the pine trees in the Augusta area were damaged beyond repair, had to be removed. FEMA came in and for two, two and a half months did nothing but pick up debris um, because of the, the sheer number of trees that came down. And I, I got to say that, um, you know, when, when we would go to continuing education classes and stuff, it, it luckily it was preached to us that due to the severity of the ice storm that we had and the uh, 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 rare um, infrequency of it, that we you should be warning your customers that it will be a minimum a minimum of three years for things to return to normal if you're not doing a major overhaul. And so that kind of became the story, right? And, uh, and that's what was told to everybody. So if, if you made pretty significant progress the first year, everybody was like, Oh my God, that's so great. And it was weird because, you know, not only did we have the ice storm, but as right as the power came back on, we had a big earthquake come through too. And so people were freaked out. It was the end of the world and all this stuff. And so, um, you know, we, the first application out and, and you're showing up and people are convinced it's the end of the world. And you're like, oh, you're here to spray the grass. And you're like, yeah, come on, let's get excited. Everything's coming back to normal, but it's going to take three years to fully get it back to normal. So 
it was kind of odd coming out of the gate, but um, it got warm in April and you know, you could, you could start to see some improvement that things were going to be okay. There was a lot of winter kill in the centipede, a little bit of winter kill in the St. Augustine, um, a fair amount in Bermuda and, uh, and some zoysia, but you know, I don't get too excited over winter kill in Bermuda just because it's so easy to grow back in. Um, and because of the ice storm, I had the, the fertilizer budget to get aggressive with it. So it wasn't just painful. Um, I'll give you an example on the flip side where the turf wasn't such a major catastrophe, but uh, landscape and ornamentals was, and that was the drought we had in Knoxville of 2016 when Gatlinburg burned down. We had the big forest fire in, uh, in Gatlinburg. And the, so we went without rain and, you know, mind you, I live in an area where we average, you know, 50 inches of rain a year. It's, we get just an unbelievable amount of rain. And, uh, and we did not get a drop from August until uh, it was like the 1st of August or something. I think August 4th was the last time we got a measurable rain until um, after Thanksgiving. And, you know, I know some people are like, you know, well, that's, that's no big deal. That's normal. Well, it's totally not normal for here. And we don't have the sheer number of irrigation systems that, that other people do because they're uh, accustomed to always being dry. We're not accustomed to always being dry. And, uh, and water is relatively expensive here for that reason, uh, especially irrigation water. Even if you're not tied into sewer and you've got your own meter and all that fun stuff, it's still expensive. And, and so nobody really wanted to run the irrigation systems. They had irrigation systems, irrigation systems would show uh, the inaccuracy of coverage out of the system they have installed. And it was a total show there for a little bit, but it's also cool season grass, right? So uh, everybody's being reseeded in the fall anyway. And, uh, and so, you know, if regardless of how dormant it goes or dies, um, you know, you're going to be seeding anyway. And it was, it was kind of odd because everybody did their aeration and seeding and it didn't rain for another, you know, almost uh, uh, three months afterwards but when it did. I mean, the grass just exploded out of the ground and, every, you know, everybody was like, yeah, I knew I could do that. See, my answer was sweet right there, ain't it? I got that. Shoot the green fire out of my fingers. Um, but what <laughs> nobody was really expected for was the next spring when the trees did not come out of dormancy. A huge number of trees did not come out of dormancy. I can't tell you how many thousands of phone calls I got that year to look at Leland Cypress um, that had uh, bot and strat cankers um, as a, and, you know, talking to county extension agents and again, in continuing education classes, they said, you know, the drought um, it just it, it weakened everything enough to allow these cankers to proliferate. And so that's why you're seeing them die at such an aggressive rate. And it was nuts. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you one of those instances where you feel like a giant jackass, right? I had done this vertical mulch job and if anybody ever gets a wild hair up there and has to do a vertical mulch job, don't, um, go, go get a ball peen hammer out of the garage. And I want you to put your hand down on the table and just smash it over and over and over until you decide against vertical mulching, because in effect, it's the same thing, except it's your elbow. Uh, that feels about like it's been smashed by a hammer after after doing that job. Um, but I did this line of Leland Cypress, right? And I and I went all out. I mean, I had the best of the best uh, uh, backfill material, you know, and it was something I, I custom put together with um, 
I, I, I can't remember the exact name of the fertilizer I used, but it had a, a polymer that swelled to absorb water and all this great stuff. And, um, so anyway, I did this vertical mulch job and I was so happy when I, when it was done because I was in so much pain and we go dormant that year and everything looked good going into winter, even though we were in the midst of the drought. And, you know, he said he was concerned about, and this is me talking to the homeowner the next year. He said he was concerned about, um, uh, overwatering because we did the vertical mulch job. So, uh, he let it run pretty dry. Well, the next spring, hmm. all of them developed, uh, bot cankers. And I mean, the whole row, except for the very last tree died. So it was like, 16 Leland Cypress all died after this guy spent a significant amount of money to have me vertical mulching because that was not cheap to do that job. <laughs> and I thought, well, clearly I did something wrong with this vertical mulching, right? Uh, I was like, I, I, I've done, you know, a dozen or so of these jobs and, uh, but something has gone awry here. But, um, right after I got the call with him, you know, I mean, it was just, it was a, a, a total influx of calls where you would go out and take a look at these and they all looked exactly the same and uh and they all they all died and uh so that's i, I don't even know why i got so long-winded about that but in 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 my experience <laughs> managing expectations when you're dealing with those types of things when you when you do have uh, a, a climatological kind of uh ab abnormality i think it's important to way overstate the potential disaster and the, the, the long-term ramifications of such a significant weather event and uh and let you know the blessings that do show up you know be the 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 winning ticket right and be like you sir the luckiest human being on earth because this should have taken five years and here we are two seasons later and it looks back to brand new and it, you know you beat your time by you know 60 percent you come out the winner it's terrible that you killed those trees before, <laughs> I did not fasting. kill those damn trees, <laughs> I did not kill those trees. No, you did not kill those trees at all. Uh, what happened was as simple as inadequate watering. Because, you know what, Matt? You know I routinely guarantee turf grass and landscapes, right? Yeah, that's crazy to me. But... Here's the flip side of that guarantee. Nobody but myself goes into the irrigation system. Nobody else adjusts heads. Nobody else is allowed on the property to even change a head. Because guess what happens when they do change a head? They then Probably throw off distribution. They, they throw off distribution uniformity. And you know what just is my real pisser offer? When someone goes into one of my irrigation systems where I made things as uniform as possible by using all MP rotators, they go in there and they either replace with a single stream rotator or they replace with the conventional 1.5 gallon per hour conventional pop-up nozzle. That's and then still they set more the irrigation risk than I would be willing to take on personally. Well, <laughs> I, well, it's okay, Matt, because uh, 
along with that risk, I I get to become uh, the Adolf Hitler of lawn care. That's good. That's good. Jeez. I'm glad someone gets to. Uh, I, I I I just here's the thing is I don't put that on your it, don't put that on your truck, Ray. Yeah, <laughs> don't put that on your LinkedIn. No, I already I already have that nickname among some of my friends here. They they say I'm just like the the guy on Seinfeld. <laughs> no grass for you. No lawn for you. No lawn for you. Oh. Next. <laughs> Use the long plan and otherwise a mustache. Yeah. <laughs> the um, I trust myself to an, an extent, uh, a fair amount, but you know, I I'd say where I am, the the weather is way too unpredictable to put any kind of guarantees out there. Um. And, and again, the, the, the lack of, uh, irrigation systems we see out here too, you know, so like, do I want total control over somebody's water hose and orbit sprinkler they've got out there, you know? Um, no, you yeah. don't, you don't. And that's, and that's the other exclusion now, Matt, if somebody doesn't have in-ground irrigation, I just as soon stay away because I know what happens. Like, especially right now where it's like windy and hot here, they cannot possibly keep up with the hand watering that they'll need to do. Oh, no. No, because, Ryan, mm -hmm. how much water do you need to put down an inch of water per thousand square foot? 627 gallons or so, something like that. Okay. And your average water hose typically, I estimate, can apply five gallons of water per minute, assuming that that is not an extremely low pressure plumbing system. Yep. So you're looking at, uh, what is that, uh, two hours and like, 15 minutes, two hours and 10 minutes, something like that. So a little while. Yeah, two, yeah, two hours and 10 minutes worth of watering per thousand square foot per week. Okay. That's why you got to pay the, pay the day laborers to do that for you, Ray. Oh, and uh, over here, watering has to happen at least once every other day. It doesn't work if you put it down all at once. And I think that's the one thing that is probably unique to a certain extent in Texas because, and, you know, help me out here a little bit, is you've got uh, some, some very arid conditions from time to time, especially coming out of... Uh, wintertime into spring if i'm thinking of this correctly and the summertime it's blazing hot so what in and especially in those soils that are going to be very very tight soils in and of themselves right what are some of the challenges that you see out there in terms of just irrigation systems in general and people that have them are they do you think they get 
the full benefit out of them because you got to kind of know how to, you can't set it and forget it out there. I guess that's what I'm saying. And Ray, I think that's what you're getting at too, is in that type of climate, you just can't say, all right, I'm going to turn it on March one and I'm going to walk away. Like that ain't going to work. Doesn't happen here. Doesn't happen. <laughs> nope. Well, here, I mean, that Dallas, sudden forgetting yeah. is kind of the only way to do it. I mean, at least the only thing I ever see, like everybody just kind of, they hire someone to do it. They, I know Drew Green's got a big presence out here and they'll set the water in the, the sprinklers and then they'll just leave it like that and everybody just trust it. And then when it doesn't work out and, you know, in my situation particularly, um, you know, was watering all through March and we were getting nonstop rain. And finally, it was like, oh, my gosh, this fungus is killing everything. Um, turn the sprinklers off, you know, let's remove some of the moisture. And then it just didn't stop raining for another month and a half. So it was an uphill battle. But, I mean, even all through all that, there's just, you don't really see, in residential, everybody's watering between 5 and 8 in the morning. I mean, they've at least got it down to the daytime hours and early morning hours. Commercial properties, nonstop watering at night. And I think that's, that's going to be the same anywhere is, you know, it's the same thing here where, uh, unfortunately, uh, like I got asked this question, um, talking to Ryan Nor by, by somebody uh, who listens to him and said, you know, what do you think about these smart irrigation controllers and what they can bring to the table and everything like that? And quite honestly, like, unless you've got a weather station hooked up to it or um, getting good soil moisture data from it, uh, it's it's a little touch and go, I think, at best, right? So, you know, you think about trying to water off of ET rates, right? So evapotranspiration rates. And I don't know, Ray, how would that work for you out there? Because there's probably so much variation day to day that you would get just as inconsistent as the weather can be. You'd have inconsistent uh, turf performance because of that irrigation always kind of swinging back and forth is any does, do people try and do it off of et out there with the weather nope nope they don't they don't i mean the the general rule of thumb is you start dialing up and ramping up your irrigation starting in may and then if we go th if we begin the rainy period in october or november that's when you almost shut down controllers completely and my concern with an ET-based system is will an ET-based system be able to keep up with situations like right now where it's raining a little bit on and off, but it's so windy that the water evaporates as soon as it hits the ground? What will the ET system do with that? You know, what will that, uh, you know, smart controller do it'll probably to that toast point some law yeah it'll probably <laughs> yeah. toast some lawns and get me fired okay because guess what kind of irrigation controller i install on, on a customer's property probably something you can control remotely no no oh wow i don't <laughs> i was gonna say right I mean, uh, Ryan, Ryan, you are you are talking to the wrong man looking for remote control of an irrigation system. Uh, Ray, I'm no, saying right now. Ray would fly. 
he would fly from a vacation in the middle of the night to come adjust an irrigation controller if he just had a wild hair up his ass that it was running when it shouldn't be. Ray, I've got four tabs okay. alone open right now, just looking at different different satellites in different locations all over Ohio right now. <laughs> so you got to get with the program, yeah, yeah. dude. You got to. Well, here's the problem. I don't work with anybody that has a budget for remotely operated irrigation. So what I do for them is your standard, you know, hunter irrigation controller, not Rainbird, please. And it does get connected or linked to a rain sensor with a rain gauge. And that is as remote as I get. That is as remote as I get. <laughs> that sounds about like Ray to me. Um, <laughs> Matt, let me ask you, uh, and with all this stuff that y'all have got going on and ripping plants out and all that fun stuff and you said uh, you said you were seeing a common disease. Was did did you say that was take all root rot or take all patch? Take all was take all was very uh, prevalent in I'd say April May. Um, my symptoms I think started around May, about the first week, um, and we had a very very heavy rain all through uh, April, even halfway through May. We didn't really start to dry up until we got into July. We were still catching off and on downpours, um, just saturating soils. Yeah, there's uh, big chunks of it there that were already starting to go bad. Um, part of this one off the left-hand side, there's also the runoff from the house. It's the only side of the house that doesn't have a gutter, and it is bare ground, and it all just runs right in between the two houses. Um, is that, is that centipede? No, it's ain't on. Okay. It's all Saint Um, so here it was kind of kind of fodder for thought here. Um, you know, I have read uh, colloquially that um, uh, you know, a, a sharp pH adjustment to the low side uh, to uh, towards acidity can help reduce the spread and severity of take all root rot. I don't know how accurate that is, but I have read that over the years. Ray, is that something, something you know to be fact or am I over here in my brain making things up? Okay. That is only partially true. Okay. It's only partial truth. What Why? what would you say? Yeah, yeah. When you say it's partially true, what what other aspect of it is is lacking in that? Okay, other factor is you also need your manganese and iron levels to be kind of up there as well. That yeah, is how you the, the... manage take take all root rot and. Other factor is, you know, P and K, of course, because 
like I told you guys, I had a real hard lesson regarding take all back in the 19, late 1980s and the uh, 1990s. I had a super hard lesson on that. It didn't go after St. Augustine. It went after all of the Bermuda and the Seashore Paspalum. Mm. And that is how, how I ended up with that wretched El Toro Zoysia all over the place. Wretched. But anyway, Take All Patch is related to, you know, certain conditions. Number one, high heat, high humidity, low ma manganese, low iron, low phosphorus, low potassium, and excessive calcium in the soil. Those are the conditions that I've, you know, identified as aggravating take-all patch in, you know, in various turf grasses. Spot on with what I've seen. Seen a lot of mm -hmm. take-all patch on putting greens, calcareous sand-based putting greens, and uh, I mean, yeah, the the right, Brian? and the yep is. Managing that using acidifying fertilizers to so choosing ammonium sulfate over urea as an unsource, uh, all of that is vitally important, right? If you're going to try and manage through that culturally, right? Those are cultural controls. And then if we're going to talk about fungicides, right? Um, you know, oxystrobin is kind of the gold standard as, as best you can get it, but you've got to do ray level carrier volume and you've got to irrigate oh. into the soil like immediately. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you see, I went with the Zoxy. Um, mm -hmm. Sorry, Andre. Yeah, you know, it's all about the the carrier volumes and how soon you get that application watered in. Because literally, you are not allowed to let that application dry on the leaves. You need to get that irrigation and that water going. Literally, as soon as you're packing up your spray rig, no exceptions. It's not tomorrow. Nope. It's not next week. You're watering that in right now. <laughs> Absolutely. So, would, does the carrier volume still apply um, when doing a granular application? I beg your pardon? Is, it still uh, as important of a factor? Is, is the carrier volume as important when doing granular? Actually, no. No. Not important, but the idea is is that you are watering in granules as soon as you pack up your, your fertilizer spreader. So if you're doing Heritage G or Headway G, uh, by the time the spreader goes on the truck, back on the truck, your first zone should be firing up and watering it in. Because are you familiar oh. with something called... Are you familiar with something called photodegradation? What photodegradation is, yeah. is when your active ing ingredient is interacting with sunlight and that interaction with sunlight then reduces efficacy of the product because the sunlight is breaking it down fast. That's gotcha. it. So, Hell yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So I think my signs usually started around the first week of May. Um, 
and I think it was within a week I went and had uh, I went with Caravan G because in fact there was a particular location here where there's mm-hmm. that, that little round circle that was just up um, that is actually mm-hmm. I believe an overflow from the neighbor's French drain and I believe with mm-hmm. all the rain we had that that French drain in the top left corner backed up and so the water was pooling out up from this I guess relief valve um, and it, it just it, it's weird the direction that that pipe goes it goes uphill um, wow yeah, it, it goes wow. like the water would have had to have been forced out from underneath um, however I was looking into it you know before uh, something on you know fungal issues I actually got down there and was working and found chinch bugs um, and ended up so I went with the caravan G because it's got the uh, insecticide to it as well and it, my results are pretty good. Um, I picked up a couple bags of, uh, I guess, Humachar. Um, I, I guess the uh, brand is Carbonized PN uh, from Aramichi Green. And threw that mm-hmm. down. Um, and it ended up growing back in just fine. Um, I can't even find that overflow for that irrigation anymore. Um, got take all cleared up. Everything was great there. Uh, I had some irrigation system control issues myself where I you know, would water in a product and then turn around and forget to turn the sprinklers off and they go off the next morning. Um, and it was unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I uh, wake up and I'm like, what did I just do? Uh, oh, ouch. Got a bit of gray leaf spot out of it. Um, so I treated that. I think I sprayed propocanazole and triple three six from queries and didn't help at all. <laughs> um, I believe it was my application myself um some human errors there yeah and mm-hmm. it has no longer i've gotten rid of the leaf spot the leaf spot is very very minimal at this point but it looks like there's a mm-hmm. lot of melting out where the leaf sheets are just greasy there you know there's a lot of discoloration um and it's pretty widespread i mean i raised my mower up to four inches and everything looks great from the street but you go stand on top of it and i mean natural St. Augustine, when you get down in it, it's going to, it's, it's definitely not just the sloughing off of the old uh, leaf blades. I mean, this is, there's lesions, there's uh, a lot of discoloration, withering. Um, okay. Yeah, I can't you know what that is? Okay. Okay. You know when your leaf sheaths pull out, that suggests to sure. me Rhizoctonia infection. And, and that's, when I'm dealing that's with Rhizoctonia, I think I see some yeah, great Rhizoc- leaf spot, at least in this picture yeah. right here, too. Well, combined with, you know, your your Rhizoc, so what we're looking at is when I treat for leaf spot, I'm also covering for Rhizoctonia or to the layperson we all know that as large large patch or brown patch, depending on what time of the year it comes out or manifests itself. And this is an example of brown patch. So the last thing I last things I ever apply for Rhizoctonia are propiconazole or Clary 3336. Those two fungicides have a specific uh, you know, use in my in my chemical cabinet. What I do use for leaf spot type diseases 
And as one component of a tank mix is your strobilurins like azoxy or uh, let's see, paraclostrobin, which is in insignia or lexicon, and or trifloxystrobin, which is contained in both exterior stress guard or armada. You know, those would be what I'd be grabbing for if I saw that complex of diseases on St. Augustine. I'd be reach, literally reaching for the Armada or, better yet, the Exterior Stress Guard. So I was looking at um, ordering, what is the one for Pythium? Methanoxin. Methanoxin. Yeah. Yeah. I was looking at grabbing some of that because um, that was just kind of where I was leaning. Um, but I still have uh, the caravan um, and Azoxy, and it's easy to get Azoxy. So I actually ended up putting down another application of the Caravan G. Uh, the first time I did it, it was just kind of a, a spot treatment wherever the take all issues were. Um, and I had mm-hmm. good success with that. So I went ahead and just did a blanket out um, across the yard. Also, uh, army worms are pretty big right now in our area. Um, one of my customers, he's got. A, a ton of Bermuda that just got munched within a matter of like three days. Oh, we hadn't sprayed it, we hadn't done anything. And it was, he just woke up one day in the ground, grass was all brown. He goes, Why is it brown? Well, we haven't done anything to it. Um, and your scrapers go off every single day. So I wanted to come take a look and I uh, got out there and I, I didn't send J Pink these uh, pictures or anything because it's not my own property, but, uh, Every square foot, there were at least seven of them just really marching around, marching on leaves. They were everywhere. Yeah, I, I I've seen that before, and in one instance, I literally was about to strangle the mowing guys because I thought they scalped the grass to death, but the actual problem was fall armyworm. And so, you know, again, when you're talking about fall, fall army worm, the other caveat or precaution that I need to give you is do not assume that bifenthrin is going to take out fall army worm. That's an extremely dangerous assumption. Do not assume. Is this I just mean, a lack of advocacy on it? Okay. No. Because bifenthrin is one of the most misused insecticides and widely used insecticides, populations of armyworm, and I have a, a very good population of that here in Hawaii, they literally will ignore or resist an application of bifenthrin. Because here's my typical scenario at this time of the year. Somebody calls me and says they have armyworm. And this is not an existing customer because I take precautions against army worm, you know, with my existing customers. Somebody calls me and tells me that they have an army worm problem, either their lawn guy or they themselves applied granular bifenthrin and it's not working. So here, here oh. I come with the Dilox and either Arena or Merit because that lawn is about to get sprayed 
I used to do and it's, uh, per, permethrin when bifenthrin started failing for me in 2013, mm-hmm. 2014. Um, I went backwards to uh, to permethrin and I loved it because, you know, you as you're spraying and you, you finish uh, a hundred foot swath and you look behind you, you just see the devastation already taking place of the, the army worms dying. And then you make your next pass and you're just laughing at them as you walk past and they're, you know, crawling up on the driveway and writhing on their back and stuff. And you feel like you've, you've you really know, done Matt, something. You know, good you know feeling, back right? before, you know, you know, back before there was a such thing as Dialogues 420 and I didn't have any Dialogues at all in Hawaii. I actually used to use Permethrin EC and Merit as my turf yeah. spray. Yeah, mm-hmm. and that just and a, that just rocks. It's a great combination. Yeah, and uh, and I, I think permethrin <laughs> gets overlooked now because of all the new friends that are out on the market. You, you know, Jason's saying here beta cyfluthrin, delta methrin, uh, lambda cyhalothrin, oh, um, and uh, you know I'm sure all of those have a degree of efficacy too. I I haven't used all of those on army worms, but um, uh, permethrin I just loved the quick knockdown I got from it, and I liked it so much more than bifenthrin because there were so many bifenthrin apps I made that I just did not uh, did not get an acceptable level of control. I, it, do you remember when bifenthrin came out? Like it was, it was really the cure all for anything. And you would see uh, people recommend it for like spider mites and stuff too. And you get out there and you go spray for spider mites, and it, it, absolutely nothing happened. And you go back and you hammer it again, Matt, and then nothing happens. Yeah. And then you go back a third time <laughs> and you you unload a hundred gallons on four hydrang on four high, oak leaf hydrangeas. You know, just <laughs> an ecological disaster and nothing absolutely happens. And then that third time you're like, I am so stupid. Why do I keep doing this? And then, you know, you mix up some hexagon, make your application and everything's all better. Right. But, um, Matt, that was, I did one me, worse. When, <laughs> was, is, was bifenthrin, <laughs> did you have to go through a period with bifenthrin for you to understand that it just sucked compared to uh, what was being promised out of it? Actually, I was always skeptical of it. Hmm. I, I tried a I tried a couple of quarts, but it became something that I would never buy again. In fact, on my truck, I have zero bifenthrin, zero. Yeah, I yeah, and, I would never carry. And, and and regarding like mites, my go to for mites up until it got pulled was kelsane. Hmm. I never ever messed with pyrethroids for spider mite i always went straight for the kelsene and then i went avid uh avid. sand mite okay and then there was uh hexacon was a good one and then finally fluoromite but as far as bifenthrin goes that is what gives me a lot of anxious phone calls because somebody or their lawn guy spread bifenthrin granule and the army worms are still destroying their grass. It's still going on. And so I show up there and I unload, you know, a spray that's up to 10 gallons per thousand square foot. 
So we actually uh, got really good results with the uh, Bicentron application. I've been back on the property twice, and I mean, we haven't seen a single one um, down there digging around. I know shortly after the application, I mean, you could see them there crawling out on the driveway, and they were just rolling over, and they were not happy. Um, I hope they're I hope they're not just you know waiting it out, but uh, we haven't had any from. We've got new growth. Uh, everything's kind of pushing through right now. Uh, haven't had, you know, all those brown patches and everything where it just, you know, got eaten so short. Um, and haven't been able to locate any. So I'm got my fingers crossed, I guess, with those hopes. But um, I'll definitely look into this to follow up just in case they do bounce back. Okay. And you have to because understand Ned, there's going to be some regional, regional variability too. Uh, you're going to hear us sure. talk a lot of shit about bifenthrin. And, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, there was, uh, uh, okay, so prodiamine and POA resistance in when I lived in Memphis was such an obnoxious thing, right? Where it, you'd, you'd be out spraying prodiamine in, in, the, in the fall knowing it's the, the efficacy you're going to get out of this is just absolutely nothing. And, uh, and you're just waiting for the spraying to go make your glyphosate application. And really, you're just burning chemical. And it's funny, you know, moving outside of Memphis uh, or, you know, spraying in Alabama or Georgia, uh, the, the ev- efficacy was still there. Now at the, at the time I heard in Atlanta, you couldn't use prodiamine because it just, it did absolutely nothing, uh, for POA there. And that was when everybody started making the jump over to spectacle. Um, but in Augusta, you know, everybody was still doing pretty good, much lower population. Right. And, uh, and you know, perhaps, I don't know, is it the, the length of lawn care in the, in the neighborhoods we were spraying? I don't know. But I had much better success out of that there. And it's it's kind of like my old atrazine tale that when I first got into the industry and I would spray atrazine, uh, it was moderately effective on POA, post-emergently. And then I had to uh, increase the spray concentration, not necessarily the rate, but the concentration. I have to spray at a lower volume of atrazine in order to get that post-emergent control that I was originally I was looking for. And then towards the end of my years in Memphis, it didn't matter how much atrazine I sprayed. You couldn't discolor POA at all. And, uh, and, you know, it just, it fell by the wayside and, you know, not, not many people use it anymore as a result of that. Um, I still think there are people that use it, uh, successfully in, um, uh, in North Carolina uh, and South Carolina. I think I know a couple guys over there that do it, but um, it just in, in Memphis, it became it became a zero on the herbicide scale. It just did just did absolutely nothing. Um, so there there is a bit of a so I don't want to scare you that oh because you went with Bifen you know you're a hundred percent screwed. If you saw the death, then that that's great um, because unfortunately the situations we run into uh, was we would not see the death and it would be very obvious that sure. nothing died. That you make an application, you swing by the next day. And that where they were at the start of the property, they're now at the side and, in, in, you know, moving into the neighbor's yard and they're walking across the driveway like nothing happened. And you're like, man, what the <laughs> f- just happened? I was like, I was I was over label on this. Don't tell anybody. And, you know, these guys are, are still marching like uh, they're they're at war. So, yeah, if it works for you, that's good. Um, but I know there's going to be other people out there in the especially in the chat right now that maybe starting to have these issues with bifenthrin and are pounding their head against the wall, wondering what's going on. And sometimes you gotta, you gotta mix up chemistry. You definitely gotta mix up chemistry. Yeah. 
you got to combine chemistry and actually know your MOA or your FRAC groups. Uh, because I frequently get asked, okay, bifin is no good. Can I use, uh, you know, lambda cyhalothrin? Uh, can I use uh, beta cyfluthrin instead? And I say, maybe, maybe not, because if there's strong cross resistance between bifenthrin and the others, uh, they're going to keep on marching. So that's when I always like to have oddball, off the wall, infrequently used chemistries, you know, ready to go. I mean, in other words, I literally go for the stuff that I know nobody else is spraying. That's actually my, my ideal product is if nobody else uses it, that's what I go for. <laughs> and Dialogs is one of those products. Di no, that's Dialogs is one that, like, I'm not sure, I, you know, never not seeing that product work. And again, it with the way it its mode of action is vastly different than bifenthrin. You know, so, and and do you know and do you know why? But Dilox has a very low risk of resistance. Tell me, right? Unlike unlike a pyrethroid, Dilox is broken down into water, acetic acid, and phosphoric acid in a matter of days. It hits and then it's gone versus your typical third and fourth generation pyrethroid maintains a residual in the environment that's insecticidally active for at least 30 days. Because with that short residual, it's very hard for a pest to develop resistance to it. Makes sense. I mean, and I think that's probably something that people don't aren't even told. I mean, and, and when I say told, it's like, why would you say that in your product literature? You know, you're not gonna you're not gonna espouse that. Oh, it doesn't have a very long residual. Uh, and but actually, not, actually, bear does. No, bear does. Bear, you know, really? trumpets that. I've never seen that in the market bear stuff. No, bear bear says that you know short residual not environmentally persistent i mean they they put that out i've seen the, i've seen it in their literature and what that tells me then is okay this stuff is going to break down for example before it becomes a serious environmental pollutant because like take your bifenthrin for example Guess why bifenthrin and the synthetic pyrethroids are now on the EPA's naughty list? Mm. It is because they're they're persistent in the environmental and non-egg you know environment enough that when it rains after application, that pyrethroid runs off into waterways and causes issues with the aquatic organisms and fish. Can we hmm. put just real quick, a disclaimer out there about Dilox. Do not be smelling the dust that comes off of Dilox. Don't stick your face in the bag. 
if if you feel like you're inhaling Dialox while you're spreading it, um, walk backwards or something, uh, because it is uh, it, it will affect your nervous system and you'll feel all kinds of funky. Um, just saying from experience, I've I've had a lot of Dialox to the face and the nasal cavities. Uh, you know, trying to spread it when I probably shouldn't have been spreading it. And uh, it is not a pleasant experience. Dialox is something that uh, I handle with care. Okay. I handle Dialox with care because Dialox is literally the last vestiges of chemistry that I used to use up until 2000. That is like the last of the Mohicans as far as organophosphates for use on turf. Mm-hmm. And for the listeners, does everybody know what an organophosphate actually is? Laid it on is the same. No, if it, it's the same thing as good old sarin or VX. Okay? It's the same thing. In fact, if anything, all of the old organophosphates were essentially failed experiments. They weren't toxic enough to be used as war weapons, but they were toxic enough to be used as agricultural pesticides. (laughs) Ray with another heartwarming fact on turf. (laughs) Yeah. I go back and and listen, I have sprayed so much orthene in my life. Orthene is asphate and, uh, I mean, I have sprayed a significant amount pallets of orthene over my career, and I worry about that one. Actually, don't, because orthene is the one organophosphate that has actually a very good safety profile, poorly absorbed through skin, for example. You can tell me that compared to others, not going to make me feel any better, Ray. <laughs> well, don't blame me if you took a bath in it every day. <laughs> well, don't blame me. I blew a lot of hoses. Oh man, really? It wasn't every day, but I would say once a quarter, I would have some sort of accident that ended with me wearing it <laughs> to the point where I was like, I probably need to go take a shower now instead of later. <laughs> mhm. Mm-hmm. Did yeah, you take a because, shower then? Uh, no. No, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, because uh and guys, that is why I'm such a nut about my spray equipment is because I don't want leaking fittings or you know, pop toses. I don't and that comes from you know, me working with chemicals prior to t- year 2000. You just didn't want any of that on you because that would be serious. And it can still happen with that. Like, tell uh, Ray, real quick, what, for the folks at home, why don't you explain uh, cholinesterase, what it does, and um, what happens when it is inhibited and how the organophosphates oh, fit is- into that. Oh, this this is going to be gruesome, Ryan. <laughs> okay, I know it will. That's why I asked co- you. Okay. Here's what cholinesterase does. Cholinesterase is the enzyme 
that tells your nerves to stop signaling. And the highest number of nerves responsive to cholinesterase are present in your brain, your digestive tract, your lungs, and your heart. So, this is your typical cholinesterase inhibition symptoms. Your nose runs, your eyes are tearing, you're nauseated, you uh, have cramps, uh, and then your symptoms progress to loss of consciousness, convulsions, uh, inability to breathe, and your heart stopping. That is your textbook organophosphate or cholinesterase inhibitor poisoning, you know, outcome. And the only immediate antidote to that is another poison called atropine. Because what atropine does is atropine counteracts physiologically most of the symptoms of that cholinesterase being inhibited. However, the problem with having your cholinesterase in inhibited by an organophosphate is it will literally take a month, if not longer, for your inhibited cholinesterase to be finally degraded by the body or and or then to be regenerated. And folks, back in the old days, one of the issues was having your cholinesterase inhibited a little bit more every day, every time you're exposed to a pesticide, until finally you reach that point where your cholinesterase has been cumulatively inhibited and then poisoning starts. So it was a case of, I've known guys where the first time they get away with their sloppy handling, you know, no gloves, no face shields, no respirators, you know, no liquid proof clothing. And then they keep doing it. And, uh, there's a guys that end up in very bad shape. And then there's yet another hazard of organophosphates. Long-term repeated inhibition of cholinesterase at low levels can cause what's called, you know, delayed nervous system damage. And that manifests itself as, you know, partial paralysis, uh, you know, twitching. Uh, it's real lovely because I I've known guys that were careless with chlorpyrifos. Mm -hmm. And they get to live with that now. In their retirement, they get to live with that stuff if they're still alive. It's scared straight turf with Ray Ito, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Matt. Yeah, and, and you guys are cut. <laughs> well, go ahead. No, go ahead, Ray. Go ahead. Go ahead. So you all are wondering, like, how am I still alive and around? Now, we know that you take, you were the one that wore a Tyvek suit to spray diazinon. So, 
no, I wonder. No, it I wasn't. Exactly it, 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 still around. No, it wasn't even Tyvek, Matt. You know what it was? It was like a, thirty a, mil a rubber boot. No, it was a full-on, you know, PVC liquid tight. Tyvek absorbs liquid. My point. My point. Yeah. Yeah. Tyvek liquid passes through Tyvek. <laughs> um, Matt, with where you are now, what situations are you running into? Where do you feel like you need the most help? And how can we help you get with where you want to go? Sure. Um, so just kind of a rudimentary uh, soil pulls um, and uh, a pH meter. Looks like it's in an 8.5. Uh, definitely use DI water uh, to make sure that you know that wasn't throwing anything off. Um, I pretty consistently, I've gotten you know four four pulls so far, and they're all between 8.2 and 8.7. Um, so trying to get my pH down, you know, like free show man, it's just one of those things that you need a, you need a sorcerer to be able to pull off. Um, looking at you know, I. I Obviously, seen the video on gypsum and how it's very, very specific, and I think it means more towards sodic soils as opposed to our calcer soils. Um, this this yard doesn't really get. This is the first year it's been fertilized. It was not fertilized in years prior. Um, you know, and, and how I can get that down to help push off the takeoff for next year for the fall whenever it starts to you know rear its ugly head again. Um, you know, I've got peat moss down, but I'll probably be doing that again. Uh, I'm actually throwing down, or I've got it. I just haven't actually put it in yet. Um, expanded shale, trying to open up the breathability of the soil so that it can drain better and not sit there and just stay soggy. Um, I did a landscape install for a neighbor recently um, and was actually just showing them exactly how much water our clay soils basically will retain. We took the new plant from the planter and we took the same size planter with our soil in it and get them both into my five gallon bucket of water and pull them both out. It's just the night and day difference you can see of the water just, you know, not going anywhere. Um, you know, and just trying to relate, you know, when, how we need to water, how often. The only real way to tell, I can't tell you to do it every day. I can't tell you to do it twice a day. I can say that when we're over hundred, you might need to do it twice a day. But the only way you'll know is to actually stick your finger on the ground. So kind of a, a lot of different things to cover there. Um, where to start? Um, the, the pH, pH man. thing. Where's, yeah, yeah is, where's, where's I Ray? mean, it's just. Yeah, pH. I mean. <laughs> the, the difficult part with pH management in your area is going to be, for, in my opinion, from a sales perspective. Um because it is not going to fit into a typical lawn program schedule uh, as it's normally pitched, right? Like, you know, if, for instance, if you're pitching pH manipulation and you have to go out and spread a bag of sulfur, that may work. But you and I both know if you're dealing with a pH 8.2 to 8.9 to 9.2, going and putting down five pounds of sulfur once a year ain't going to cut it, right? That Like, that's just... That's not going to be a, a, a short-term fix to any, any sort of problem. The second piece of it is, uh, you know, I think if you're, if you're at the point where, uh, you know, whenever you run uh, granular fertilizers, if you, 
can approach your supplier and make sure your primary nitrogen source, I'm not saying to disregard like all urea, right? If you still need to hit a target uh, uh, in analysis, I, I fully you know support and expect you know some urea to be in the blend. But if your your dominant in source could be ammonium sulfate, that's working in your favor, right? Um, and then, so I'll I'll explain it this way, and you know, selling your pH manipulation program as a package, and it's and what what I mean by that is when you approach the customer and you've got a data set that that shows you have high pH, right? And you say, listen, you know, this is, this is the old wives tale mentality is to apply, uh, you know, five pounds of sulfur. And when you have a pH of 8.9 and this much calcium, it's just not enough of a, of a buffering material to provide you, um, a, a long-term sustainable impact towards your pH. So at that point, it's, it's upselling basically a whole nother program, right? Like even outside of disease control, because you you can sell a disease control program too, right? Like, oh, you know, we do uh, two strobe in the spring and we do two strobe in the fall against uh, a, a large patch, right? Or in this same instance, you know, we're going to do uh, elemental sulfur once in the spring, once in the fall uh, or in late summer. And then, you know, monthly from May through uh, October, we're also going to be applying citric acid once a month at a pound per thousand, and the water's going to come on immediately afterwards. So it's it's a it's a bit more complex, and it's very difficult in a in a lawn care setting to be able to do that. One, um, you know, buying citric acid to be able to make those applications isn't very cheap. Um, so if you're applying a pound per thousand, you're already in at a bare minimum of a dollar per thousand, right? Assuming your citric acid is a dollar a pound. And, uh, and that's assuming you can get it at your doorstep for 50 bucks for 50 pounds, right? So already you're in for that piece of it, but then you've got fertility on top of it, right? And then can you do it on the same day or can you not do it on the same day? Well, if you're applying a pound of citric acid uh, per thousand square feet, and you know, it's probably not wise to be going in right on top of it with another uh, pound of N from ammonium sulfate directly on top of it as well, right? That's your risk to reward ratio isn't quite there. So it's difficult. And I think really the only thing you can do is use leverage the data you have at your fingertips, right? By, by being able to show it. And, uh, and then also try, however you have to equate and I still haven't figured this out, and that's why I'm saying it this way. I still have not figured out how to explain um, the buffering capacity of the material you're using, right? Like, you know, if you've got an excessive, uh, excessively high pH, um, it's it's just is going to require a greater amount of uh, uh, of neutralizing material in order to bring that down. So that it's. I don't know how to pitch that. I don't know the right analogy to tell the customer to make that make sense unless you have a chemist customer that's like, oh yeah, that's right. And that makes perfect sense. I totally understand that, right? Um, but I think selling it as a program approach, one, it generates a shitload more revenue for you, right? Because now you're running two programs on one lawn. Um, two, uh, the the it's it's going to cut down on the amount of things you have to do that may or may not work right like um 
it's interesting you using the expanded shell or uh, you know oil dry or uh, turfus or you know any any of these types of products to help try and promote drainage. That works, right? Um, but I would also argue that in the same method that if you were able to get your pH into uh, an appropriate um, uh, into a, an appropriate range you're going to end up leaching a lot of calcium citrate and a lot of magnesium citrate out of your soil surface too. And you'll probably get a little bit better surface drainage out of it as well. And it may save you that step from having to do that. One may be cheaper than the other. I don't know. But when it comes to things like take all root rot, where you need iron availability, you need manganese availability and, uh, and you need a better pH, you know, do you want to constantly keep it band-aided under the, um, under the um, uh, fungicide approach, Fungist. or do you do you want to make a long term correction uh, to try and and cut down on that? Where you know three years from now or two years from now, you're riding around the neighborhoods and they all have take all root rot, but all yours are beaming, glowing green, right? And is it a bit of That's a pipe what I'm looking dream? For is something long term. And is, okay. is it a pipe dream to hope for that? In in some instances, yes, because you have to sell that program in order to deliver that kind of result, right? And that program's not cheap, and it's 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 not an easy sell. But but if you can get your pitch right, um, and 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 develop the right analogies to explain why you need to do these things and appeal to that piece of the customer, um, that would allow them to come off that money to do it, then yes, now you're set up to have that long-term success that probably other people in your area aren't willing to invest the time, uh, the, the sales training time of even you just training yourself to get it into your head, repeating the same thing over and over to make sure you can answer the questions in an appropriate amount of time. And if you can't answer the questions, you can, you can tell the customer honestly, I honestly don't know, but I can find that out for you, right? Instead of just being caught on the spot and having to insert a line of bullshit there. And then they are a chemist and they're like, you dumbass, I'm a chemist, blah, 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 blah. You know, you know, you get what I'm saying. But I, I think all of those pieces of the, of the, of the triangle are necessary there, right? You need the, the sales aspect of it. Um, the program aspect of it is obviously doable. And then you need the, the budget to, to go behind it as well. And if you have all those three things, then I think that long-term solution is feasible. And then so far, I guess, you know, we're talking, you know, like I said, expanded shale or, or whatever, different drainage. Um, and, you know, coming through with, you know, albeit expensive, but citric acid, you know, trying to bring the pH down that way, um, you know, or raise method of 250 pounds of sulfur per thousand. Um, but you, know, you can only do that during a renovation. If you went and spread 250 pounds of sulfur, you know, you just yeah, smoked the grass. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, so the grass now, is dead. Now, uh, now you got a budget for the sulfur and, and the new yard on top of it. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. You, you... <laughs> and hopefully one day wouldn't have to worry about for a while. You know, I could, I could warrant you and be like, right, I guarantee <laughs> it for you know, the next five years, right? <laughs> right, right. But then, Matthew... Yeah, but Matthew, I think... The way I approach this is I address my pH, you know, and make that a priority. I actually reduce a lot of my other inputs by addressing that first. Because in my area, 
what will eat my lunch if I don't address it is large patch. Large patch mm-hmm. eats my lunch on alkaline, salty soils. I mean, it just it just gets me. But I run that citric acid. I you know put down that sulfur. That just makes my because what I'm trying to paint the picture of is you can be all good with your fungicide program, but if the fundamental cause or contributing factor to your problem is not addressed, you are just, you know, basically gambling in that the time that your fungicide application doesn't work is when you're going to get questioned. Okay. You're going to get questioned. And so that is where I adjust, you know, I address the pH issue so that that is just one more assurance that everything I do after that works and works as I say it's going to work. Because when I'm dealing with a high pH so, soil, everything's out the window. Nothing works. I, I think that yeah, you're, you're not a control you... on whenever your pH is over eight, right? You don't have any control over what you're putting down and how it's going to react, really. It's kind of just a shot in the dark. Um, right. You know, exactly. One of my concerns, I guess, would be is making too drastic of a drop um, because nope. I do believe our water table is fairly low. And making too drastic of a drop can leach heavy metals down into groundwater. And I guess that would be my only concern is if I drop it too fast. You know, do I need to stick around two to three pounds per thousand at a time and get it watered in right away? Or, you know, when dealing with the with sulfur, I mean, can I safely go higher than that? Uh, two to three pounds per thousand is just what I've seen recommended for the most part. Um, Actually, you know, is that, that recommendation... Is that even it's not. It's not. And in fact, the good part is, is that sulfates and sulfides bind to a lot of your heavy metals of concern and form insoluble products. So you're not doing something horrible. On the other hand, you talk to me again about, say, using something like nitric acid. Then we're going to you know, have another conversation because... Nitric acid is the acid where all metals are soluble, but if you're talking about sulfur, less likely. And I also know that citric acid will form less soluble or insoluble complexes with a lot of your you know, heavy metals of concern. So, okay. so you know, you're, you're pretty safe there, but you know, because in your case, when you're dealing with the regularly irrigated lawn, I would not be nervous about pushing five pounds of elemental sulfur per thousand square foot per month of growing season and one pound of citric acid per application. And when I say per application, I know people that want to get their pH down faster than than later and they're pushing applications twice a month with the citric acid. Okay. Is that one pound per, that's okay. one pound per thousand, correct? That's one pound per thousand per application. Okay. But 
other other factor that I'm going to put into that is this is where your application volume gets important because if you have a pound of citric acid per gallon of water, you have about 10 to 15 minutes before it starts to burn the grass. You try to do that in a half a gallon of water or a third of a gallon of water per pounds of citric acid, it'll probably burn on contact. <laughs> yeah, and, and Matt and, and Ryan Shing is on. over there saying, wave bye-bye wave bye bye to your grass. Exactly. Exactly. Go ahead and close that account. Just go ahead and close that one out in QuickBooks. Yeah. Whatever you're, whatever <laughs> yeah. Is. Yeah, 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 just, can, just cancel that customer. Yeah, just delete, cancel that. Uh, just can, delete, delete, confirm. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, again, like when I'm fooling around with citric acid, that is why I want such a high application volume, and that's why I have spray equipment that can run high application volume, so that I can safely do these more risky applications, and you know, have a lower chance. Because by the way. If it's urgent, I've even applied as much as five pounds per thousand square foot at a time. But that's in a shit ton of water. <laughs> followed by a lot of irrigation. <laughs> uh, I'll just say this from the from the sales side of things. I you know, what you were talking about, Matt, I've got to explain part of my job is explaining cons or concepts that are complex to people that don't want to necessarily hear complexity and i don't necessarily have all the right analogies uh right now off the tip of my tongue usually i'm really good with analogies but i can't think of any good ones that are uh either good enough or dirty enough to uh ascribe <laughs> what we're talking about here get the point yeah. so that said i think you have to treat this as a, like a layered approach right you tell folks that hey Listen, the absolute number one thing that we have to do, no matter if you want to um, beat take all and some of the other Rhizoc diseases that we might face is pH. We've got to correct your pH. Okay, here is the hard data, like Matt was saying, and then you can create a program around that. Now, if we get into, okay, hey, the next higher level, well, okay, I'm concerned about these diseases, but I don't know if I'm ready to pull the trigger on a fungicide program yet. Then we can get into some of the cultural controls like, okay, hey, let's show you the soil data and say that, hey, actually you're a little bit deficient in um, manganese and or magnesium, right? Particularly manganese uh, is impactful on uh, take-all patch. Take and that might be another corrective, another corrective program, okay? Let's say that you get to that point and they're still not satisfied, right? Because all I'm telling folks is that, hey, I'm here to mitigate as much risk as you're comfortable with either financially on one side, right? Or based on the outcome of what you see on your grass, okay? And we can't go back in time and we can't just say, hey, well, we got take all, so now we're going to do all these things and it's going to make it all better. We kind of have to start from square one, as you know, and but that's the way you relate it. So let's just say that the uh, pH thing does not necessarily um, do everything that they want it to do. The cultural controls don't do everything that they want it to do. Now it's fungicide time, right? Now I'm going to sell them on a fungicide program and say, hey, listen, this is the most surefire bet. We've got the other things, you know, kind of beaten back as far as 
the cultural aspect of it and the pH aspect of it. But now if you really want to have clean turf and mitigate that risk to the extent possible that we're likely not to see disease, we have to use a fungicide program like what Matt was saying. If that's two strobies in the fall in the spring, two strobies in the fall, I think that's a, a dynamite program for that. Now, the last thing I'll say there, and just to back up what Ray said, is the formulation that you choose, the application technique that you choose, and all the little details absolutely matter on this one. Absolutely matter. The reason that I would say to not use a granular fungicide in this case, okay, is this, is that it has very much uh, been proven that we've got to get the right amount or enough concentration of that fungicide to the root as quickly as we possibly can. Can't bypass the root and we can't meter it out slowly like some of these granules might do and just put it in soil solution and who knows if it ends up there or not. So, uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure that they've tried to do that and um, manipulate the Prill technology to be able to do that. I'll, I'll let Matt maybe discuss that a little bit here uh, in a few seconds as far as, you know, what they're able to do and how they're able to manipulate that. But the way that I understand the formulation, the way I understand the way that the AI interacts with the root to prevent take all and other root borne uh, pathogens is that you're simply not going to get enough there fast enough for you to see meaningful results. And so that's one where I'd be definitely looking at a liquid also from a cost per thousand square foot uh, basis, you're going to save a lot of money, a lot of money and have better results too. So that's just getting your uh, application equipment dialed in the right way. And then also to um, understanding, you know, nozzle selection, understanding uh, if they don't have irrigation, like rain has got to be like imminent. And when I say imminent, I mean, you're looking at dark clouds and there might even be a strike of lightning above you. Matt, any, any discussion on the, uh, the Prill technology that they use for those um, granular fungicides? I don't know much about what they're using as carriers for those. I, it's just the cheapest inert Bentonite. fine material they can find. Bentonite or something like that? Yeah, you want something that is not a super strong adsorber, but has enough bulk density to get good prill distribution, right? Um, if it's a strong adsorber, it can inhibit how much of it actually makes it uh, into the soil or in contact with the plant. So um, mm -hmm. you want something without a, just a tremendous amount of surface area um, and uh, basically is, is just inert. And who knows? I mean, nope. that, that's, oh, that's look at look at Ray holding up something here. Those shower oh nozzles. What do you got in there? I thought it was are those screens. Are those screens from a sink? No, these are ceramic discord nozzles. Oh, here we go. This is a gun that discharges five gallons per minute in a very wide swath and with very fine particles. This is not like a Kimlon gun. And with this gun, it's possible for me to cover a thousand square feet with five or more gallons uh, and not take very much time doing it. And the reason why I bring this up the reason why I bring this up is, you know, Ryan is talking to you about 
carrier volume and getting product, you know, on the grass and into the roots. The other thing that I do is if I up my carrier volume to 20 gallons per minute, I can then skip the watering in entirely. And I actually prefer to do that in some cases because then I have chemical at a known concentration just saturating that lawn and I don't have to worry about oops, I ran my irrigation too damn long and now my product is leached past the root zone and I'm screwed, you know. I just overwatered it. And that kind of, you know, is like my concern when I'm talking about, for example, insecticides and fungicides is you need to get it in, but then if you overshoot the root system with your active ingredient, you're then not effective again. And that's kind of why I also am not happy with granules because you need to water in, but then you have no control over how much of it dissolves and how deep it goes once it dissolves. Yeah. I mean, I, that's just like, you know, things that I'm thinking of. And so Ryan has a very naughty, you know, reason, you know, analogy as to why he doesn't like granules. He has a real naughty analogy. That's not, <laughs> that's not really naughty. Yeah. I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. Can I, go, can go I say ahead. that on there? Yeah. <laughs> go for oh, it. Oh, okay. Go for it, well, Ryan. Okay. We give your permission. It, it's like, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. It's like this. Uh, granular fungicides are like sheepskin condoms. You know it's not what you really should be using, and it's so hard to enjoy yourself that you're and you're so preoccupied that you know it's 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 a problem. So you ought to use the liquid formulation uh, of of that. So you know, stick with that. Don't use the sheepskin condoms. Only bad things can happen, right? You know, you don't want to have an accident. So I do want to throw this up. Let me let me give this over here to Jay Pink. I could have delivered that better, but I'm just um. I'm scanning here to find this graph that I think is really good. Uh, Jay Pink, it's coming to you. I'm like Matt Martin. I've got 9,000 tabs open right now, I think. <laughs> Matt Martin, if you don't, if you don't I did know. A, a bit of a purge before I came on the air. <laughs> and I'm down. I, I've got four four monitors are all my four monitors all have Chrome open on them and I've got maybe 15, <laughs> 10, 8 and 1 that are going right now. Listen, when I built my can, computer, can we, I put 64 yes, gigs of RAM in it purely purely for the Chrome tabs. That is commitment to disorganization and multitasking, and I love you for it. I really do. That's right. I really if I do. Had told you what I had open right now, it is it is just it's crazy. <laughs> uh, Adobe Premiere is open. Adobe Photoshop is open. Adobe Illustrator is open. The Discord, Spotify, Clipart, uh, Microsoft Word. I've got like thirty Microsoft Excel spreadsheets open. Uh, Notepad <laughs> for whatever reason. Six instances of the calculator. 
Um, I, yeah, it's it's just dumb. you know if you I don't know and if and I've if got you, problems if you go play if you go play Minesweeper or Solitaire right now you're probably going to force a reboot. There's no question about it. All right, so <laughs> let's look at this real quick. All right, so this is a study. Uh, this is Jim Kearns at NC State. And they were looking at some of the strobies and a couple other, I can't remember which ones. I could send you guys the article and look. But I want you to look at what they recovered based on the irrigation amount that was given right after the application, right? So you can look here in this zero to one, one to two. So they looked at sampling depth. But in every case, right, we don't want zero to one. We want to get down one to two, two to three, three to four. That's where our roots are. And if you look here, it's kind of interesting because, you know, look at the one to two range and, you know, basically neck and neck between, um, you know, as little as an eighth of an inch all the way up to a half an inch. Statistically, we're the same. Now, uh, an inch of water pushing that down in obviously got a little bit better uh, in terms of the recovery here. This is on uh, Michael, Michael Butanol. So uh, this is Eagle. Now, so you go further and further down, though, but then there's a direct relationship between the amount of water put down and the amount of recovery of that fungicide. So, Ray, when you see this, any strong feelings, anything that jumps out to you that you would beg to differ with or that would, you would want more study on? Okay, what I'd want more study on is I need to see this broken out According to application volume, like I know one to two gallon per M is pretty much standard for application to fairways and greens. Uh, let's uh, see what happens when, say, we go up to five or 10, or in my case, as high as 20. Then yeah, let's, was I, two, I would like to see. Yeah. Two gallons. I'd like on to everything. see. Two gallons, okay, two gallons, and and that uh, two gallons to me is may I say this? I call two gallons per m a relatively light coat. Jesus, <laughs> if you had to do Matt, Mar you know Matt Martin would be in Matt Martin would be in jail in Augusta or Memphis right now because he would have tapped open every fire hydrant between here and the pyramid in memphis you know trying to get more water because old boys out there at you know uh, did i say 0.25 we could probably cut it down to 0.22 and make that the permagreen right it'll be fine mm -hmm. right? yeah yeah that it'll shit, go that shit it'll, it'll run it'll bump out, that shit'll bump out. it'll cool. run it'll go <laughs> yeah but uh but yeah that's uh yeah two gallons per thousand would be you know what would probably be, you know, able to penetrate, uh, you know, so much soil. But then let me ask you this, Ryan, how many Go people have their, their irrigation system calibrated such that they know exactly how much water they're putting down? And I'm not talking about golf and sports field. I'm talking about commercial and residential turf, then then it's like all bets are off, right? Anything's possible. Yeah, uh, um, I think that's one that there's nobody, there's nobody that is uh, that, that's able to definitively say that. And I think this is all a guess, right? 
this is totally a guess. Mm-hmm. I think the number one thing that you have to know here is your calibrations, you know, when you're doing this. And so just make sure when we know that Ray, when he turns this the light coat, it is two gallons per thousand square feet. So just remember that. <laughs> two gallons. Matt Matt Martin is probably somewhere around a tenth. He's about a tenth of a gallon of a light coat. <laughs> yeah. That that okay, because actually uh there is something to be said for that because do you know how they spray for mosquitoes aerially? They're applying literally one to two ounces of undiluted insecticide per acre out of the airplanes when they spray for mosquitoes. So it can be done, man. I, I know it can. Okay. What they have is Okay, what they're doing is they're breaking a lot of the rules that apply to us lawn people and they're atomizing down to 10 microns. And at 10 microns, that's just enough of a droplet to contact mosquitoes and kill them. But to me, I remember being on a show with Matt and telling him that I want on average, whatever comes out of my sprayer to be at more like 300 to 400 microns because I want my active ingredient to land on the ground and not drift away. (laughs) When you start getting into low volume, so when you're doing low volume like that, it's still the same rates you're you're doing much less carrier much greater concentration right so you're basically spraying almost concentrate at that point right uh you, you know and i'll give you an example in the lawn care world it's like spraying out of a permagreen right you're putting down 11 gallons of diluted material over an acre versus you know say you're using uh a a hose and a gun with a with a with a lesco gun and a a yellow tip nozzle you know you're putting out 100 gallons an acre you know it's kind of a a stair step thing there but it's all the same rate right so you're still applying 64 ounces of chemical per uh per acre Uh, it's just in the instance of when you're doing it with an airplane you know you your dilution ratio on that may be extremely low right so you may be applying not diluted yeah, and exactly. non-diluted, Matt. Yeah, not because a st- standard application is like one to two ounces per acre of undiluted ninety-seven percent malathion. Oh. That's what they do for mos- That's what they do for mosquitoes. I mean, <laughs> that's what they'll do. But then, the factor to consider when making applications is. In the case of something that you need to get into soil, I don't mind, for example, coarser drops. So where, you know, that yellow nozzle Kemlon gun or even like, uh, what other colors have they got, Matt? Uh, On the Kemlon gun. White. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Blue, white. No, wait. Do they have a blue one? I know they got yellow, yellow, green, and white, I think. Like a light blue, okay. I think. They do have a light okay. blue. Okay, because what I'd be looking at is 
even for your citric acid application, if you decide to pursue that, I extremely recommend that you put that out in as much water as you can possibly stand doing because that's going to mitigate your risk of even making the application. Because if that product dries on the grass leaves before you can get the irrigation on, uh, you are in trouble. You're in huge trouble. Because you're spraying the grass with acid. <laughs> sure. The, bl- the blue nozzle is yeah, one and a half too? gallons. Go ahead, go ahead, Matt. I'm just running my mouth. No, Actually, I... I asked. I asked. Uh, yeah, I asked what 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 the gallonages were for the various tips. You know, the was uh, that's not in my that's not in my world. I mean, I I've, I've never really used a Kimlon gun, believe it or not. Never have. You know, closest thing to the Kimlon gun is this guy. I think everybody needs to. I, I think the Kimlon gun is like. The M1 carbine, like everybody should have a chance to fire that in basic training before you get out there in the world and start killing lawns. I really do. You you got to go through that. You got to get the can, we need Matt to get a wide angle on the camera and demonstrate his walk. I want to see his pace to hand movement and see how he does. <laughs> Are so you a true two to one guy or what? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I am. I am very much a high frequency hand speed. It's all about the hand speed. So I'm more of a three to one, I would say. Um, oh wow! Okay. I shit, I shit you not. I am all about the hand speed. I am not one of those guys that I equate it to like a travel in uh, in basketball, right? You know, when you take two steps and you only move your elbow out once, kind of sort of thing. You know, I used to watch people spray like that. I'm like, what the hell are you doing? What is that? You're accomplishing nothing. No, I mean it is it is balls to the wall, full throttle, intense hand movement. Uh, this is with the Lesco spray gun. I'm not saying I do that with a backpack or anything like that, but with the Lesco spray gun, it is all about the hand movement. I am lightning fast on it. I look like a crazy person. I swear to God, I will, I will stop every project I have right now to come down and film a week of spray coach, Matt going around. Just, we just roll up on an applicator and you just get out there, high socks, bike shorts, pull it up, you know, well past your kneecaps and just get out there. Son, you got to get down there. You got to break down. Break down on that there. All right, three to one. Here we go. Here we go. Let's see it. Knees high. Like, I really want. I really want to see it. I really want to see Spray Coach Matt as a spit, you know, a little a little spoof thing on the grass factor someday. Can't Listen, wait. When I used to train people spraying and they weren't moving their arm fast enough, I'd call them a slack ass. That was like that was my my term for it. It's like you know we don't have time for slack assing with your elbow when you get out here. Faster hand movement means higher quality kills. Move your in hand. <laughs> well, is Johnny is Johnny the, Fescue in here? I need to come down and spray some of his yards, and uh, and that would be, I think that would be because he's an old timer. I think I think that would fit. Johnny Fescue, if you're in the chat, message me. And let's let's get that scheduled. Yeah, yeah, because with this thing, I don't have to move my hand particularly fast because. This puts out like a, I want to say a 15 to 20 foot cone of spray. And I just, yeah. I got to see this. 15 to 20 foot. I really need to see this. 
Yeah, well, this is what they used to use on the golf greens back when they were spraying it with mercury and cadmium. <laughs> okay? This, 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 this goes back to that time, although I... You know, kind of that modernized. Was, that was it. last year, man. I see you yeah. with crazy eyes. That was last year. Yeah, but, but, uh, I'm just spraying mercury is never a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they used to do as that as up until 1980. No, they used to do that up until 1980, Matthew. But anyway, the good part about this gun, Matt, is I can easily fit this with the triple drop Venturis very easily. Yeah. Yeah. And if I do the triple oh, yeah. drop Venturi, then that virtually eliminates any drift. Because, yeah, and then I'll burst and hit the ground. Yeah, it'll burst and, and hit the ground. And, you know, those bursting bubbles of, of spray liquid contribute to your spray coverage. Because did you see that... Uh, that slide that Ryan put up a, a week or two ago showing the difference between uh, an air-inducted nozzle and a, and a non-air-inducted nozzle where it actually provided rather good coverage while also reducing spray drift. I mean, this is just... Uh, yeah, you know, Let me see if because I like I said, it. yeah, put the, I, want, I want Ryan to put that up for us again so that, you know, the... Uh, you know, the listeners can, you know, see that because I know with most things that I apply, they're all going through some kind of an air-inducted tip. They're all going, you know, as air-inducted. You know, That's about the same. Hang on. Uh, okay. I'll find it. Keep going. Keep so talking, Ray. If I could ask a question on that, because I was actually looking at those XRs, um, or the AI, sorry, the air inductors. Um, you know, if I recall correctly, they don't have anything that comes under course. Like, if we're looking at a uh, broadcast, you know, like a uh, you know, herbicide application where we're trying to, you know, get some post-emergent control over Kalinga, Santa Barbara Graph. Um, I want to go fine. I want to go medium-sized droplets. I want to kind of, you know, make sure I'm getting solid solid coverage down but i don't want drift if i'm gonna go AI, if i'm gonna go for an air induction system how do i get you know do i not need to worry about getting a smaller droplets anymore to get the coverage because the drift is no longer an issue or how am i still making sure i get the coverage with a larger droplet the the thing is what you just the one variable that you didn't mention which is pressure ray tell pressure. tell tell yeah no tell Matthew, why pressure is so critical on those type of applications with an AI nozzle. Okay. You know, when you're using an AI nozzle, you're no longer running your tips at the 15 to 25 PSI that you need to run them at to try and minimize the creation of small drift-prone droplets. Instead, what happens, you know, when you crank up your spray pressure to 40 50 or in my case i'm even running them at 100 plus what happens is yeah. imagine you have that bubble of liquid being forced down into the grass and weeds and when it's forced down like that at high pressure it's still not as prone to drift 
And remember now, that's going to hit the weed and then the bubble's going to break and, you know, burst like a, you know, like popping a balloon and splattering everywhere. And so you're still going to get a, the coverage because, for example, I still run a lot of my contact herbicides in lawns like, say, Speed Zone or Carfentrazone, you know, Quicksilver or even Sulfentrazone through an AI nozzle. And I don't have any issues with bad coverage because if I had bad coverage with an AI nozzle, it would show up as the weed being only burned, you know, in a couple spots on each leaf. Because by the way, you know what my worst spray coverage came from? Me trying to run an XR spray tip at low pressure, trying to control drift. Because what happened is, you know, a couple of big drops came out of the tip. Majority were still fine. And so what happened is that a lot of that spray never even landed on the weed. And I just saw burn spots on the leaves and, and, the, and, the, and the coverage and the kill just sucked for me. I was just not happy at all. But I do the same application with, say, my, you know, AI 11004s applying about a gallon per thousand square foot, it works. I'm just running the pressure 40 and above. I mean, is there 40, 40 and above? 40 and above. Okay. Yeah, 40 and above on, on the AI. And, uh, and, you know, like say you need to run something like, say, foliar iron, you know, liquid iron, you know, to, or liquid manganese to, you know, deal with your micronutrients. That There's nothing wrong with running an AI tip at up to 100 plus PSI to get the foliar coverage. In other words, I'm telling you to forget about that whole thing about, oh, I need a finer tip. You don't need a finer tip. Sure. Just because you get droplets. yeah you get, you get more smaller slightly smaller droplets and more of them per minute and that's what's getting you the coverage because uh literally when i'm running my spray equipment there's a range it ranges between 40 psi all the way up to 500 psi tight tolerance <laughs> It's a tight it's tolerance. Not. Just remember, folks, it's not just the tip. All right. We're not playing just the tip here. So, uh, Jay Pink, go ahead and throw that up real quick because that's a great segue into say hi to my cat back there. Uh, okay. So, uh, we went over this before, but Matthew, it's a great uh, little slide. It's so handy. And again, this is water sensitive paper. You can pick this up on gamblers.com. I do not get an affiliate link. I don't really care. I just want to see a spray better. So pick this up. You can get way better uh, results of figuring out what your spray coverage looks like. Or looks like. Excuse me. Uh, so uh, letter A right there is a raindrop nozzle. So that's a more of like an ag type nozzle. We wouldn't necessarily use that in turf. Uh, B is what's called a turf jet nozzle, which is the raindrop adapted to turf to be a little bit less coarse. Um, it's mainly for soil applied products. So that's going to be 
soil applied fertilizers that were spraying out or insecticides, uh, pre-emergence, things of that nature. Letter C is your typical XR flat fan. Uh, regardless of whether you're using a 80 degree or 110 degree nozzle, that's the kind of coverage that you're going to see. And then lastly, letter D, that is your air inducted nozzle. So it's a very coarse droplet, but you can notice here, this is all sprayed at 50 gallons to the acre. So just a tad over one gallon per thousand, right? And what you're noticing, what you should notice is that between C and D, between our XR our flat fan, which on a day that you've got any kind of breeze over three miles an hour, every time you turn around and make another pass, you're going to be wearing whatever you sprayed, right? Everybody that sprayed with an XR tip knows that, right? And then you come home and your old lady's like, why do you smell like chemicals? I can't believe you bring that into this house. That's not really like my wife, but I've, I've, I've heard from people that that takes place. So letter D, not that bad, not that bad at all. So again, uh, that shows you that, you know, the, the uh, air inducted nozzles do have a place. Uh, I do agree with Ray that the pressure thing is something that is undersold on those on how to get the, this type of coverage. And the only way to really know, I mean, a lot of people, and I think I said this last time that we showed this slide is, uh, you know, we just run it over the pavement, the concrete. Man, it made the pavement wet. Look at that. Look at that. Or if you're in Tennessee, made the gravel wet. Look at that. Look at that. So you got to adapt for those. You got to adapt for those regional differences. Okay, we don't have pavement yet down there and down there in the holler. I don't, but I've got some beautiful fifty-seven stone, and it looks nice. Okay, uh, get off my guys, nose. You. Yeah, but guys, you see the the relatively uniform size of droplets. The droplets being relatively uniform. Versus the XR nozzle being a combination of very big drops and extremely small drops. Picture D is literally what you want when you're making applications in most cases because it's relatively uniform drops, very little fine drops mixed in because anything smaller than 200 micron is what's got, what I call drift prone. Okay? Anything under 200 micron is the kind of spray droplet that will pick up in a 5 mile per hour wind and end up where it has no business being. I think most people agree, Ray, that Ds are fun. And I agree in this case, too, that this D looks like it can be uh, pretty good. So, yeah, with that, what you know, Matthew, we, we covered a lot there because I, I really that was just one statement you threw out there when we asked that question. And we we riffed on that <laughs> hard, and that was that seriously, that was fun. What you know, what else is there anything else we can help you with or any other questions you have right now? Um, I'm sorry you're growing your grass and limestone. I feel bad, I feel awful. I grew um bent grass at you know a tenth of an inch in calcareous sand, so I kind of know how you feel. Uh, made it work, but. Yeah, I mean, what else? What else you got for us? Um, I mean, really, just you know, we, like we said at the beginning, you know, Pete just kind of got to be the first thing to go down to make anything else worthwhile, or or even somewhat controllable. Um, and so, just looking, the only thing I actually was watching the video just the other day. Um, you know, the water's hard. You know, is I believe the video was talking about how 
litigation just isn't the technology is not there um for something to get consistent um to actually lower the water um out of the municipalities and prevent it from basically raising the ph back up and being counterproductive to all my efforts um you know is are there any products out there you guys are aware of that you know can be hooked up and you know actually are reliable or is pretty much everything out there just still the you know not really good for residential use dosatron i'll just say this i was gonna say dosatron yeah, if you're dosatron. gonna if you're gonna water but 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 ray ray alluded to it earlier the distribution uniformity and um accuracy of those irrigation systems especially in a residential or commercial setting i'd call into question big time and be concerned with so that being said um you know matt espouses a product called eximo which i think is a fantastic product i've used it before uh, way back in the day on those calcareous greens worked fantastically it, uh, there's other products that are very similar to it that work just fine but if i was in your situation i'd take that out of the hands of the homeowner sell that as a separate program and try to use that yeah. to uh, move those bicarbs out of the uh, you know upper portion of the root zone and continue on down from there so guys you got anything else here to to wrap this up we're getting close to it on time here and i know um matt you wanted to mention our sponsor and also the show after yeah uh i'll go ahead and get that out of the way listen i'm 34 years old soon to be 35 in a month and one day and I did not think it would be possible for someone my, my age to be experiencing low testosterone, especially someone who looks like me, who's hairy as hell and uh, is balding and has fathered two children. I was like, yeah, it certainly ain't nothing I, I deal with. I took a blood test and you know what? It turns out I am I was clinically diagnosed as having low testosterone. Honehealth.com forward slash the grass factor. For $45, get your test done check and see where you stand it doesn't hurt to know we in turf grass utilize data data is king data is, data is king no matter what you're doing get the data see where you stand you do not have to use the excuse i'm just getting older it does not need to exist listen i know there are people that are watching here right now and it, and i guarantee you everyone is, is a man there may be like one woman in here men take care of yourself you owe it to your family you owe it to your spouse you owe it to your significant other and it can start right here for 45 dollars. check it out honehealth.com forward slash the grass factor it's super easy it's painless you get to talk with real doctors you get real blood work done and you get to make real decisions over the future of your health now beyond that if you want to tune into the show after the show and i want to throw a couple uh uh warners out there is that the show after the show, we use bad words. Uh, the show after the show is controversial. The show after the show doesn't exist anymore after the show is over. If you're interested in being a part of that, taking a part in that additional content where we're gonna take additional time to uh, take a look at a lot of the fallacies that exist out there, whether it be on the interweb or other places, hit the join button, sign up for any of them. It's $3.99, that's a, that's a, a beer at Chili's. You can do the higher tiers if you want, if you want access to some of the other crazy, crazy shit that goes on. Uh, I mean, I just, I've been trying to avoid the bad words and I just dropped it. 
if you want to check out some of the other things, we do some some uh, uh, special things for members of those uh, tiers as well. But if you join, it's it's the it's the price of a beer. You get access to a private Discord. You head on over to Dirty Deeds. The link exists for ten minutes and ten minutes alone, and then it, it's gone forever. You cannot go back and watch it. You do not go back and repeat it. It is live once once only, and then it ceases to exist. Check it out. Um. <laughs> Ryan, Ray, Matt, anything y'all want to add before we get out of here? Hey, uh, this we, is J Pink. Uh, we got we got one mailbag real he's quick. Here. Oh, we got a mailbag. <laughs> we got mail. Uh, All right. And you've got and mail. You've got mail. It's fitting only because we've got Matt from Tennessee, Matt from Texas, and now we've got another Matt. Uh, so completely different oh, Matt boy. writes in. Uh, absolutely love the channel. I live in Western Pennsylvania and have primarily perennial ryegrass with some Kentucky blue. I'm going to give liquid fur and spoon feeding a try. Just purchased grow ore and green ore moving into fall. I would normally put down half a pound of nitrogen per month. My question is, how should I factor in the efficacy of liquid fur with foliar uptake compared to granular? when I figure out my applications. Grower recommends a pound per thousand, but that's only 0.17 pounds of N. Should I make any adjustments? Yes. So, uh, well, kinda. You increase the frequency of application, right? So you're still going after those numbers, but you're applying more frequently to get there, right? So, uh, whereas with a granular, you may go dump it all down at one time. And you have to take into account volatility, leaching, all that fun stuff, denitrification. In this particular instance, yes, you're running a lower rate. However, your frequency goes up. And so you may be applying two, three times in a month to hit that half pound. And there you go. You're good. I'd be every 10 days at a pound starting 1st of September-ish and going through uh, a couple weeks before Thanksgiving. There you go. That's like seven eight apps something like that you're going to end up at 1.2 something like that pounds go for it send it send it i i concur because uh there's nothing like multiple low rate applications of by the way guys in grower that is a lot of nitrate nitrogen isn't there in that in that grower uh oh it's ammonium sulfate and potassium nitrate so yeah it's kind of a combination of both yeah okay high ammonium nitrogen high nitrogen nitrate nitrogen and in fact when you're getting into the cooler part of the year those are actually the most effective nitrogen sources to apply when your temperatures are starting to go down so your grass is actually going to be utilizing that you know, rather optimally. So I, I agree with Ryan. Uh, keep hitting it at a pound per per thousand square foot uh, up until, you know, the end. And that should probably, you know, stock up your grass so that, you know, when it's when it comes springtime, that your grass is going to be ready to, you know, bust down some doors. <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. 
<laughs> Here we go. All right, on to the after show. Again, if you don't like bad language, you don't like any of that stuff, well, it's just not going to be the place for you. However, if you do like all those things and watching absolute uh, debauchery of all things that are sacred and turf, please go ahead and hit that <laughs> membership button. Get on there, join, and we'll see you next time.